Thank you so much for tuning into our podcast. You honor us by finding us and listening in. We pray this sermon stirs up your love for Jesus and grows you in your faith. But before we begin, we ask that you not let this podcast, or any podcast for that matter, replace the local church in your life. You need to be a member of a local congregation and under the shepherding of that flock's pastor. So please become part of a local church if you aren't currently. If you'd like more information about our church, please go to www.mountzionchula.org. Enjoy our podcast. Oxford, England, right in the middle of Broad Street is a simple stone structure. It's actually just a few black stones in the shape of a cross. Just up the road on the left is an apple tree where local legend has it that Sir Isaac Newton sat under that tree, and when the apple fell on his head, he discovered gravity. Off to the right, if you go up Broad Street and take a right down one of the alleys, just at the entrance of the church, is where one morning while C.S. Lewis, uh, after, after having attended church services, walked out and looked around and saw a lion's head and a lamppost and started putting together all the imagery of the Chronicles of Narnia. Down that alley, if you go all the way to the end of that alley, you'll find a shop where a little girl named Alice used to visit and get candy. And from that came Alice's adventures in Wonderland. If you keep going across the street from that shop, you'll, you'll come to a dining hall that is familiar to anyone who has ever watched the Harry Potter movies. It's the dining hall of Christ Church, where today, famous picture, fam- pictures of famous scientists and ministers, musicians of years past are all hanging on the wall. And those in the younger generation have seen people fly around that room, books collapse, spells be cast. If you go back to Broad Street, you'll see a library that was also used in the filming of Harry Potter, and that would be familiar to anyone who has seen the movies. If you go back down to the other end of Broad Street, you'll walk into a pub where on Tuesday mornings, J.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis sat at their own booth and enjoyed fish and chips and a beer while they wrote their stories that have become the world-renowned. Yet the most influential spot in all of Broad Street and in all of Oxford is those few stones, those black stones, sitting right in the middle of Broad Street. Because those stones represent not some cultural tale that is told and on the movie screen, not an understanding of science that changed the way that we look at the world, but those stones represent the changing of the course of history for the Christian church. Today, the the area is actually closed off and it's used as a restaurant and there's a table that actually sits on top of those stones. If if you want to see them, you've actually got to get a reservation at the restaurant and move the table to be able to see them. Because most people who sit on top of them have no idea of the significance of those stones. 
Yet those stones mark the spot where in the early 1500s, three men, Vladimir, Ridley, and Cranmer, were burned at the stake. They were burned at the stake not because they had violated some law, not because they had robbed a store or murdered anyone, but because they dared to tell the Queen of England that they would worship Christ and Christ alone. That it was not the hymn books or the books of order, that there was no earthly authority above them, or above Christ rather, and that they were going to worship him. One of them, Thomas Cranmer, was actually given time to recant. He wasn't burned with the other two, but he still refused, and Bloody Mary still executed him there in Broad Street in Oxford. And as those stones sit there, it is a reminder to us of the truth that has been held throughout all of the Christian church, throughout all of Christendom, throughout all of the 2,000 years since Christ has been crucified. It is a truth that is spoken clearly throughout all of Scripture, but most clearly by John, by John the Baptist when he said, I must decrease, but he must increase. That no matter what life throws at us, no matter what life comes about, we must live our lives according to one motto and one motto alone, that I must decrease and he must increase. That whenever we face the trials of life, we must ask ourselves not what brings us the most comfort, but what brings him the most glory. Whenever we look at a world that is broken and in need of Christ, we don't ask ourselves, how can I fix this world? But we ask ourselves, how can God use me for the most glory to bring him, to bring the, sorry, to, how can God use me in the most joyous manner to bring him glory so that his gospel may go forth? Because the, the pressing need of the world today is not for more people to be fed, is not for more people to be housed, but for more people to know about Christ. Because ultimately our problems all started with sin in the Garden of Eden. And they play out for some people with hunger. They play out for some people with lack of housing. They play out for some people when, when the doctor walks in and tells you you have cancer. But we all know the root cause. That Christ... As the agent of creation created a perfect world in the Garden of Eden. And we ruined it. And by ruining it, we brought sin, we brought death, and we brought destruction into the world. And that is why it is necessary for us to look at Scripture and for us to resound in a voice of one 2,000 years later as John the Baptist did when he said, I must decrease. And he must increase. And if anyone felt that more, if anyone felt that height of that, it was John the Baptist. From the very moment that Jesus stepped into the world. John the Baptist felt that he was going to be playing second fiddle, as he should. Because there was something greater than John the Baptist. And that was Jesus himself. What in earthly terms we would have called his first cousin. John points us to many things 
And he shows us exactly what it means to say, I must decrease and he must increase. And it starts from the very first from the very first chapter of John's Gospel, of John the Apostle's Gospel. If you would turn with me to John chapter 1, verses 35 through 51, we're going to be looking at this morning. As we see exactly how this played out in John the Baptist's life. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John the Apostle records this in his gospel. Chapter 1, beginning in verse 35. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Continuing on in John 1, 38. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first followed his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah which means Christ. He, bought, he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, So you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida and the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him from Moses, in whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus is Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel, Jesus answered him. Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending. On the Son of Man. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we start this morning. Lord, this morning we thank you for being able to gather together as your people at Mount Zion. And Lord, we ask this morning that for the next few moments that we have together, that you would keep every heart and mind focused upon you. And Lord, that you would help us to be able to collectively glean truths, Lord, glean, glean 
thoughts that you would have us to have this morning. Lord, that you would help us to be able to have your scripture change, mold, and transform our hearts and our minds. Lord, we do thank you for this opportunity to be able to come and to worship you in peace and in comfort this morning. For it is in your name that we pray. Amen. I want you to notice what is going on here as John is displaying here for us. As John the Baptist is kind of the central figure that gets all of this started. If if you know the story, you know that what has happened is Jesus has approached John the Baptist and he has been baptized in the river. He has been he has been baptized. And John did not really want to baptize Jesus, but Jesus continued to insist that he did so. And then in the next day, you you can almost picture that Jesus is continuing to hang around with Jesus and his disciples. I'm sorry, with John and his disciples. And and John is wanting to continue this kind of thing that started the day before. He is standing, in fact, um, we're told, with two of his disciples. And he looks and he sees Jesus. And he wants to take this opportunity to be able to proclaim to his disciples that the Messiah has come, that something greater than themselves has come about. And notice the first words that John records this day out of the mouths of Jesus. I'm sorry, out of the mouths of John, that as Jesus is walking by, John is just filled with emotion. He is filled with joy just to see the Messiah walking by him. Then he loudly proclaims, Behold! the Lamb of God. In this, John the Baptist is telling his disciples, here is the Jesus that we have waited for for thousands of years. Here is the Messiah that we have longed for. Here is our salvation. Here is going to, who, who is going to come the one who is going to give us what we cannot give ourselves because he is going to go and he is going to be the Lamb of that is sacrificed for our sins once and for all. You know, it would have been very, very easy for John to have taken this in a completely other direction. John already had his disciples. John already, we know from the previous parts of Scripture, already had a large following around him. He had what today we would have considered success. Yeah, he was a little weird. He ate honey and bees and dressed in lamb's camel clothing. But he still had a massive amount of success according to our standards. He had an audience that would listen to him. He had people that would follow him out into the wilderness. And I'm sure they would have followed him to other places as well. I'm sure had he desired it and wanted it, they would have given him vast sums of money. So this story could have gone very differently. John could have very easily, when he saw what happened with Jesus, he could have very easily shuffled his disciples away and said, not my disciples are you taking. You're not going to infiltrate my church. This is something that I have built. This is something that I have done. But I want you to notice, John the Baptist does not do this. In fact, he looks in the face of the Savior and he says, Y'all please follow this guy. Leave me alone. Follow him. Leave me out in the wilderness. Listen to what he has to say. He is the Messiah that we have longed for. Notice he says, Behold the Lamb. Later, 
Later it will be proclaimed, Behold the Lamb that takes away the sins of the world. And John willingly, easily gave up two of his disciples because he cared nothing more than to see people come to faith in Christ. He knew he was not the Messiah, but his job was to point to the one who was. You see, there's a lesson for us today in, the, even, these, in even these first few verses of this story. Because there is a desire, and I think all of us, that we want to be the one who gets the recognition. We want to be the one who is seen as the smartest guy or gal in the room. We want to be the one who, said, who others say about, that person changed my life. We want to be the one, because we are sinful people, who others look to and say, I want to be like him or her. I wish I had as many social media followers as she has. I wish I drove the car or the truck that he has. I wish I could do the great, I wish that other people, some say, that Jesus would use me as Jesus is using him or her. But I want you to notice here, even in these first few verses of this introduction, the man who could have had all of that in his day, the man who could have had everything, still gave it all up for Jesus himself. He, he gave up every bit of it. Because John understands and we know as well that our goal is not about earthly success. Our goal is not about how much gold we can have on this earth. Our purpose in life is not about who we can marry, what house we can live in, or who we can impress. But our goal in this life is to be as much like Jesus as we can possibly be. And John understood this. Our goal is not happiness. Our goal is holiness. That are we more like Jesus today than we were yesterday? Are we more like Jesus at 80 than we were at 8? And that is what John is communicating to his disciples. And that is what John is communicating to us by extension. That the world is going to drag us in all sorts of directions. The world is going to tell us that your purpose is your career. Jesus is going to tell us that our purpose is bringing glory to him. The world is going to tell us that your children is the greatest thing you will ever achieve. But Jesus is going to tell us, lead your family to Christ because that is all that matters. The world is going to tell us, it's okay if you sin a little. It's okay if it's a little white lie. It's okay if it's only a few dollars. It's okay if you never get found out. And Jesus says, follow me. You must decrease and I must increase. The goal is not our happiness. The goal is that we are holy as Christ is holy. You see, it's not accidental because there is nothing that is accidental in Scripture. That this story starts with this point. Because I want you to notice what comes after it. 
in the next few verses. After John has clearly established for his disciples, listen, please quit following me. Please go somewhere else. Please do something else. Follow this Jesus. I want you to notice here, starting in verse 38, that Jesus sees them that are following him, and he turns around and says, What are you seeking? Why are you following me? And they immediately call him rabbi. They immediately call him rabbi. And they go to the place that he is staying. And I want you to notice how between verse 38 and verse 42, something miraculous happens. We think a miracle is Lazarus raising from the dead. We think a miracle is when a doctor walks into our room and tells us that we have cancer. And then in the next screening, we find out that we don't. And don't get me wrong, being miraculously healed of cancer is a miracle. Being raised from the dead is a miracle. If someone were to walk in that back door this morning and yell, Y'all won't believe what's happening in the graveyard. Bodies are coming up. I'm the first one out the door to go see it. But that's not the greatest miracle. I want you to notice, in these verses, the greatest miracle took place. Because in verse 38, these men who were followers of John are now following Jesus, and they call him teacher. And they follow him to where he's staying. In verse 38, he says, come and you will see in verse 39. So they go and they see where he's staying. But then by verse 41, he finds these people. He brings these people, rather, to the people that have already found him. And in verse 39, he is teacher. But by by verse 41, he is the Messiah. And that is the absolute greatest miracle that Christ ever brings into the hearts and minds of people. You want to see a miracle, we don't have to look for it in the hospitals or in the graveyards. We don't have to look for it in the addiction shelters. We don't have to look for it in any other place than the gathering of believers at Sunday morning at 11 o'clock. Because whether you have had cancer or not, whether you have had a medical issue or not, whether you have been in the depths of despair or not, if you are gathered here this morning, or whether you've had no issue in your life or not, you are gathered here this morning because a miracle has taken place in your life. You are gathered here this morning around the preaching of the word and the teaching of the word because you know that in your own life, Jesus, who was once a great teacher, has now become the Messiah. And that the greatest miracle that takes place is that a gathering of people come together and they say, I once was, but now I am. You see, the greatest miracle that God performs through Christ is that as we gather together, we can look and we can tell the tales of how Jesus has transformed all of our lives. Yes, he will heal us from cancer. Yes, he will heal us from despair. 
Yes, he may change our financial situation. But our greatest need is not any of that. Because ultimately, all that only matters as long as we are on this earth. Our greatest need is that Christ has come into our lives. He has saved us from our sin. And he has gone from being simply a great teacher who says a lot of really good things to the Christ, to the Messiah, to the one who after we pass from this life will greet us at the heavenly gates with well done, my good and faithful servant. You see, that is what happens here in this chapter is that in verse 37, these people that John has has had following him, they are leaving and they are starting to follow Jesus. And Jesus offers to them what John never could. He offers to them salvation. He offers to them a new identity. He offers to them what they could not give themselves. They could go read a book and find out the wisdom that John had. They could not read a book and find the Messiah to save them. Jesus is the only one who can do that. And he gives us a new identity. I want you to notice here, um, Simon, he becomes Peter. He has a new identity. That is not insignificant. Jesus is saying that whenever they change names, they are changing identities because they are a completely separate person. We say it differently in here in the South. We say he forgot where he came from. And that's exactly what Jesus means. Because where we came from is not where we're going, nor where we're returning to. You see, these disciples, they become the disciples of Jesus. When they are confronted with the facts of the gospel, when they are confronted with the Jesus who can save them where they cannot save themselves, their response is to accept him immediately. To see him not as just a great teacher, but to see him as a Messiah. And although he may bring them earthly joy, although, yes, we know Christ heals people. Yes, we know Christ brings people out of the depths of despair. Yes, we know that Christ is working all things for our good. Ultimately, the reason that we worship him is not because of any of those things but because he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so our only response whenever we are confronted with the claims of Christ is to do exactly what these people did, which is to say he is the Messiah. He is the long-awaited one. He is the one who gives us what nothing else on this earth will. And that is why we gather together. That is why we come together. It is not because we're in some social class together. It is not because we speak a common language. It it is not because we enjoy being with each other. Although all of those things may be true, we gather this morning not as a people who say, I've got it all together, Not as a people who who, who say, I've got this life figured out, 
but as a people who say, I know the one who has it all together. I know the one who has it all figured out. And as I look across this room, I see a group of people who realize our need for the Savior, and I realize that I am one of them, and that we come together, we come together to worship him. Because I want you to see where this story goes next. I want you to see how Jesus orchestrated exactly what was going on. John says, Behold the Lamb of God. Then we see that his disciples are following him. And in very short order, they are calling him the Messiah, who, who is going to fundamentally change everything about them. But he is able to do this because he knows us so intimately. You see, in verses 43 through 51, Jesus continues on talking to his disciples. And he tells them, in not so few words, I know you better than you know yourself. Because not only... Does Jesus display here that he knows these people's past? He also says that he knows their future. He knows that which is unknowable to us. Well, there is no way for us to know our future. I, I don't care what Sister Ruby says. She doesn't know your future. But Jesus does. And because of that, those of us who follow Christ are going to be given more than we could have ever imagined. Look here what happens. In verse 45, Philip found Nathanael, and he runs to him and he says, We have found the one who was in the law of Moses. We have found Jesus of Nazareth. Now, we would like to think that Nathanael's response would be, Oh, really? Let me go see. But that's not what Nathaniel says. We wish it was, but it wasn't. Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? How can this Messiah come out of such a podunk town as Nazareth? How can this Messiah come from a place that no one, except those who are from there or were forced to pass through it, have ever heard of? But Philip responds, and says, you must come and see right now. You must come. And Nathaniel decides that when he gets there to Jesus, that he is going to quiz Jesus. And he asks Jesus, how do you know me? And Jesus says, before Philip called you, when I saw you under the fig tree, uh, under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathaniel is amazed. And he says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And you almost think that Jesus might have raised an eyebrow a little bit when he looked back and says, that's what impressed you? Wait just a minute. You're impressed because I knew that you were sitting under a fig tree. That is what impresses you, Nathaniel. And Jesus responds, just wait till you see what I have in store for you. Just wait until you see the amount of good I am going to bring into your life. 
Because you see here what Nathaniel was thinking. Nathaniel was thinking is, I have just found another good teacher. And Jesus says, no, you haven't just found another good teacher. You have found the man who angels listen to. And notice here, Jesus tells him in verse 51 that you will see the heavens opened and that angels will ascend and descend onto the Son of Man. Do you see what Jesus here is telling these people who have come to follow him? Who are, what he is telling Nathaniel is that he's saying you're going to leave a lot behind to follow him. But ultimately, the Messiah, the one who is the Christ, Jesus himself, he knows us more intimately and better than we know ourselves. Which means we are going to give up a lot to follow Christ. We are going to give up financial resources. We're going to give up time to come and to gather with God's people. There's going to be times we will even give up promotions at work because what we believe does not allow us to do a certain job or those who are in charge will discriminate against us. But I want you to notice that God knows us more intimately than we could even know ourselves. And that through following Christ, although in this world we may have troubles, ultimately, whatever we experience, God is using to bring good out of evil. God is working all things to our betterment. God is working all things to our good. For Nathaniel, it meant following him for the next three years. And then, watching the one he had followed be crucified. For us, it may mean that we get stuck in situations that we have no idea how we are going to get out of them, or even how we got ourselves into them. But the gospel says that Christ is working all things to the good of those who trust in him. That God is going to bring good out of an evil world. And that even if we don't understand it, God is going to bring good out of evil. Because God knows what we need even when we have no idea. God knows what our needs are before they have even been aware, before we even have any idea what those needs could be. And you see, that is what Jesus is doing here in verses 43 through 51. When Jesus says, you're impressed by me knowing that you are under the fig tree, just wait and see what is going to happen when you see me commanding the angels. Wait and see what is going to happen whenever I'm in a boat and I tell the waves to stop and they stop. Wait and see what is going to happen in the very next chapter when we're at a wedding and I change water into wine. If you think a fig tree is something, wait until you see. And that is exactly what is happening in our lives. That if there is still breath in our lungs and we claim to be a believer in Christ, God is still working. That even in the most dire of circumstances, God is working to bring us to joy, 
to bring us to goodness, to bring us to holiness. It doesn't mean we're always going to understand it. It doesn't mean we're always going to be able to make sense of it within the circumstances. But we know that at the end of the day, the God that can see Nathaniel sitting under the fig tree and can command the angels as he wants them to is the same God that is looking out for your and my life. And he is working all things for his glory and for our good. Now, where does this leave us, though? Where does this passage of Scripture leave us? Well, first off, if we are here this morning and we're not a believer in Christ, this is a, this is a call, this is the trumpet sounding, that Jesus is not just a, a great teacher who said a lot of really good things. He is not just a powerful rabbi. He is the Messiah. He is the Messiah, and He is the only one who can take away the sins of the world. The Bible tells us that all of the death and the destruction and the heartache that we see is caused by sin. And that Christ is the only one who can repair that sin relationship that was broken with the Father. And so the gospel pleads to those who are unbelievers to accept Christ as the Lord and Savior of their lives. The first step, the first step on gaining that relationship is to trust in Christ, to believe in his death, burial, and resurrection. But I would say that is not the majority of us this morning. That is not the majority. The majority of people who gather together at any church on any Sunday morning are those who have already trusted in Christ. And so what does this passage of Scripture mean for us? What can we glean from it? I think there is really, even though there's kind of three steps that get us here, there is really one truth. And that God is bringing His people joy. God is bringing His people joy. Can you imagine any more joyful circumstance than to be Nathaniel? And Jesus looks at you and says, come, live your life with me. Whatever you have to forsake, come, live your life with me. Not only will you see the angels ascending and descending, but one day you will be able to live with the angels. You see, God wants to bring his people an immeasurable amount of joy that only comes through knowing the Messiah, that only comes through knowing Christ. The world can bring us temporary happiness. The world can bring us temporary moments of glee. But the world cannot offer us joy. The world cannot offer us a mindset of joy that looks at the circumstances of this world and says, no matter what may come, I will glory in Christ. The world cannot bring us the joy that only Christ can. And this means that even when we turn on the news, we should be brought joy. Because we understand that no matter how terrible it may be, Christ is coming to make all things right. That one day we will see him descend on the clouds, and in that day we will know that all
all of the suffering, all of the heartache, all of the misery is going to end because Christ is coming to rule and to reign supreme. It means that no matter what passage of Scripture we read and understand, it should bring us joy. Because Scripture was not meant to bring us depression or heartache. It was meant to bring us joy. From Genesis to Revelation, there is one story. It is Jesus is coming to get His people. Look forward to that day. Live your life knowing that Christ could return at any moment. But live your life with joy of that fact. Not in trepidation and fear. Because for the believer, whether we see the end of this life through our own death, or we see the end of this life through Christ coming to gather His church, we get to see Christ, and that is what matters. That all of us, whether we are still on this earth in a hundred years, or we're passed from it tomorrow, we are on the fast track to spending eternity with Christ, and that we can make it through whatever this life brings at us, because the gospel has given us joy, and we are looking forward not to the next paycheck, not to the next weekend, not to the next doctor visit, but we are looking forward to Christ and His eternal kingdom. And that is what keeps us going. That is why it is different when we come together. That is why it is important for us to come together. Because we are spurring each other on in this joy. You know, I told you about the Oxford martyrs with that cross right in the middle of the street. What I didn't tell you is that one of them, Thomas Cranmer, he was approached by the Queen of England. He was, he was her chief spiritual advisor. And he was approached by her and said, you know, if you will just recant, if you will just say that you were wrong, in your teachings of the gospel and wrong and the things that you wrote, we can forget about all of this. We, we can forget about everything. And you don't have to die. The other two won't get off the hook. But you, you can save yourself. And the story says, the accounts of what exactly he said are different. But the story goes... And Cranmer looked at her and said, I cannot save myself. Only Christ can. And may my hand be the first thing that you burn. Because that was what broke the truth of Christ. And when that fire is over, I will have joy, Queen, that you will never experience. And that is what the story of Jesus calling his first disciples is about. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we finish this morning. Lord, we thank you for the fact that you can and that you do change lives. And Lord, we ask this morning that you would allow us to be able to understand your word, to find joy in the salvation that you have provided for us. And that, Lord, we would leave here a people who understand you more deeply and desire to follow you more fully. For it is in your name that we pray. Amen.